Okay, so go turn to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> I had the Bible study done before, of course. We got in at about quarter after 10 last night. But I had to do a little crash course reading this morning to kind of freshen things up. I did write a, um, an introduction. I would like you to uh, uh, focus on it. Um, to kind of bring us up to date in a book like this is complicated as it is. This letter, um, I think, needs updating every once in a while from the different speakers that are here. Uh, Romans 8, verses 29 through 39. Bring your attention to the fact that whoever chose this, I think Gary did, you could start at verse 31, but it is, I'm glad he did choose. Actually, I'm going to prefer to start at verse 28 instead of 29 <clears throat> to bring things into focus in the context. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. In whom He predestined this these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will we not he, not also with him, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall also shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every theology must begin with the premise of God's personhood and God's sovereignty. Who God is, is as important as what God does. And what God does demonstrates who God is. Therefore, from these two theological beginnings, we start to understand the causes and effects in the world, and the whys and the purposes and the reasonings of this holy God. That God loves automatically brings us towards an understanding of His person. When you understand His person, you understand why He loves such filthy sinners as you and I. God is not all-knowable. To know all of God is to be God. But to know God's revelation of Himself is to be in tune with the thoughts of God about us. And this is what it means to be a Christian. To think and act like God's Son is to know God and to know Him well. Paul tells us we are children of God. This association with God reveals to us God's love for us. 
Chapters 1 through 7, specifically more 1 through 5, have described our relationship to God as aliens and enemies of God before we were saved. Destitute of any natural affection for God, we walked in the darkness of our own sin. Living in the paradox of created image bearers as created image bearers and acting like the sons of Satan. Wanting to do good while good was far from us. This is what it means to be dead in sin. Romans 6. But God, Paul says, helps our weakness, listens to our prayers, and answers them. This is not only how our salvation began, but also how our relationship with God continues. The Spirit of God interceding for us daily. The work of grace did not just happen. There is no spiritual, spontaneous combustion. It occurs not by chance, but by design. By the very expression of the nature of God himself in three distinct persons. Working together in divine unity and love. Writing in the Lamb's book of life the names of God's elect to the salvation of our souls. Sin, Satan, and the world could never hold us from the grip of a sovereign hand. Isaiah 46, verses 10 and 11 says, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. And therefore, this is why we are so blessed to be at Sovereign Grace Chapel, not the Free free Will Grace Chapel. Right? There is a big difference theologically to those who are more theological astute. But even to, if you are not theologically grounded per se, um, you can understand the difference between the will of God over the will of men and Him expressing it to bring about this great salvation we have so rich and free. Well, Paul is so excited and so stimulated by the fact that we are called the children of God and that we are cry out to God as Father in heaven. He has also said to us in this chapter that we are no longer condemned. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the very starting point of understanding the, the, the tension between us and our weaknesses and suffering in the flesh that he brings out in Romans chapter 1. Our calling to literally to struggle against sin through the Spirit and to walk in His only Son as one who is considered also a child of God. We have the Spirit as well. He begins here, or mentions here, in verses 24 through 26 or 27, that the Spirit of God even intercedes for us. There is this communion, this personal, not only union with Christ, but communion with God through the work of the Spirit of God. Probably the biggest thing I've learned from my reading of Dietrich Bonhoeffer over the, Dietrich Bonhoeffer over the past couple of years has been the fact that our salvation is not just from the Father through the Son by the Spirit, but everything else back to heaven is through the Spirit, by the Spirit, through the Son, back to the Father. And we have to understand this theologically to understand this greatness of God's work in Trinitarian persons. So what Paul does here, and I'm going to reread verse 28. It's something that the previous speaker would have talked about. 
but we have to this is, you could say this is the crescendo of our relationship with God and his sovereignty and we know that God causes all things to work together for good that word together is better translated or actually somewhat inserted according to uh, Doug Moo it's better read all things work to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose there is this great certainty based upon God's sovereignty for a statement to be said in that manner we know to say that the people of God love God is to say that they belong to God. And with this certainty, we are, we, Paul is actually brought, in, in my opinion, as a letter writer, we, always, we should never uh, disconnect the fact of Paul being a human being just like you and I, writing a letter with the emotions and the will all engaged in theology and of the very truths that move our hearts to write things the way they are written. And as he does, he's led to consider the very foundations of this love and it's called the sovereignty of God. And he lists four things in relationship to the sovereignty of God that we see in verses 29 and 30. And here's the thing, and we have to be careful of this today, is, is that we could go on a rabbit trail on these four perspectives of the sovereignty of God and His foreknowledge, His predestinating power. His sovereign love that leads us to a calling that calls us and then the ultimate glorification to which God calls us to. But these four important doctrines are not His point. The point is from verse 31 on. But we have to talk about the three major, the four major doctrines He references here to build this little bit of foundation at least without going on this rabbit trail in relationship to the sovereignty of God that brings salvation to the elect of God. He even mentions the elect. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You can't study these four doctrines without coming to the conclusion we are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's just talk about them for a few moments. We have to, I'll be the rain. I'll be, you know, you're the horse and I, I'm sitting on your back and and I've got the reins in my hand, so if we go too far from each specific doctrine of the eternal destination of, of God's elect, I'll have to pull on those reins because we could just spend all morning there. So the foreknowledge of God. What is the foreknowledge of God? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Yeah. I used to think that it was because God knew ahead of time. It is part of the definition. Well, what I've come to understand is mm-hmm. that to fore, you know, when we talk about in the Bible, we're talking about who foreknew who or who knew who, mm-hmm. and that that was dealing with love, and that was dealing with mm-hmm. um, Axel. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, this foreknew means to that God loved us before mm-hmm. time began. So it's rather, I mean, that's what Pink says. If it was if it was simply just knowing something in advance, if you were to turn back to Ephesians, I mean uh, Acts chapter four, you, Jesus Christ Himself was foreknown. So if you read that text about Christ being foreknown of the Father to redeem mankind and to suffer on the cross, 
it would be pointing to a decision made in time rather than a decision by God before time. Before the world began. And the whole context of this is the eternal counsel of God of the three Trinitarian persons and the very ordaining knowledge of God to ordain you and I to be the very people of God. Children of God, as he speaks just before this. Paul is caught up. And are we not as a church, as a doctrines of grace church? We are caught up in the doctrines of grace. I can't... I mean, I have to restrain my own self here from going too far in these doctrines because it is not the main point and thrust of what Paul is making. It's because of these doctrines that Paul says what he says in verse 31. But yes, Wally, you are correct. It is the foreloving of God and the foreknowledge of God. It is when you when um, when uh, Adam entered into Eve, or you see other references of texts that they're talking about that 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 uh, intimate relationship of man and woman in a marriage relationship entering into one another and the full satisfaction and consummation of this relationship and covenant relationship with one another and with God. And so here it is. And Doug Moo points to this. He says it's the entering into a relationship with our God through His foreknowing us in love. It's the reason why Paul says here in that verse 28, the reason why I wanted to start with it, for all things work together for good to those who love God. He must be saying who have entered into relationship through the love of God. Some believe that uh, <coughs> God foreknow, foreknew that we would have faith and choose Him. Uh-huh. Which would be the opposite of what the Scripture actually says. And that's the whole doctrinal discussion in a larger format. Uh, which I we're going to talk about just a little bit, but just a little bit, because Paul's emphasis is the sovereignty of God. He is no way talking about the will of man. He's talking about the will of God within our life. It literally can be translated also in front of. God is in front of everything in our life. In front of everything. Not just our salvation. In his foreknowledge, he created both and Paul will talk about this at the end of Romans 9, vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath, both for particular purposes within human history. He created even the wicked for the day of evil. How, who are we? I'm going to use the words of Paul. Who are we to understand these things? This is, by the way, knowledge not given to the world. We are given a treasure of knowledge that go beyond the under human understanding. This is spiritual understanding. And spiritual understanding comes with responsibility. That we would not trivialize that text that says God created the wicked for the day of understanding and using it for something to, to pound over the head of men. But to but to bring to our own hearts the very humility of the knowledge that we were saved by grace alone. You know, if it is if it was with difficulty that God saved me and I'm going to mess this one up I haven't memorized it for a while. But what is the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? If we were just barely saved, what is that outcome? But see, we must say it with compassion and concern and care. We must long for the souls of men. Because the sovereignty of God can puff up 
but it should actually not puff up. It should bring us down low to the humility of Christ. Because Christ went to the cross to save men, not to condemn men. Right? Not at all. Now I've got to move on. I'm pulling the reins in on myself. This is just one of the four. The second he mentions, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. This predestination is to limit in advance, to determine beforehand. Another way to translate it is to predetermine, to ordain. And here's the context. Electing you and I in love. Entering into the love of God in relationship to Him. The third one, the calling of God. He predestined us these he also crawled. It's almost, it's almost uh, an a. It's one of those moments where, like, a thought comes to your mind, and then it's like, oh, but God does this so great. I, I've got another thought in my head, and I've got to add to the list. This is what is called an ordo salutis. An ordo salutis is just the order of salvation, but it is it is a a uh, conjuncted? Would it be what is it, a it's a, an abbreviated form. In other words, if you look up in your systematic theology book, the order of salvation or the order of salutis would be much longer than this. And as you read other theologians, you would also talk about there's disagreement about the order of salutis and definitely theological camps. And in that also too, just because we have theology out of this book to come up with an ordo salutis or order of salvation, that doesn't mean that in the deep counsel of God, in the secret places of God, there's another characteristic of the order of salvation that we just have not even been informed of. But we do know and fully understand that it is informed first and foremost by the sovereignty of God. To forelove us, to predetermine and elect us, and then to call us. Now, we could easily go on the theological rabbit trail again here, where the calling, theologically, there's a universal call and a special call, a particular call. Universal call is like the shotgun effect. You use a shotgun when you want to hit a, hit, hit a lot of birds, right? Or a lot of targets. But you use one bullet in a rifle to hit one target the electing call is the rifle shot the universal call is the shotgun shot in other words you just blast into the world the gospel of Christ and that is the call for all men to repent but the call that comes from heaven above from the sovereign electing hand of God comes down with the with the power and the force of this love to redeem and elect people chosen by God before the foundation of the world. I like to look at it as referring to um, the outward call and the inner inward call. The outward call being mm-hmm. the call of uh, a pastor or an event or whatever. The inward call That's right. being of God direct. And that is that is good theology, Wally. That is for sure. All right, Wally. All right, Wally. <laughs> by the way, we were on vacation. If you don't know, we were on vacation last week in Dominican. And there's only one person that I thought of all last week. Does anybody want to guess? Uh, Wally McKenzie. 
Am I am I that low in that I need your thoughts and your prayers? <laughs> oh my goodness. I couldn't wait to come home and say that. I love you too. Oh my goodness gracious. What we have to remember here though is this is not a theological tristice on the sovereignty of God in relationship to the universal and the particular call of God. This is the particular call of God that Paul is rejoicing in. He has a single-mindedness here that is speaking about those whom he called he also will glorify. He's talking about you and I. Not talking about the world right here, right now. Mm. It is a calling. We think of it this way in Matthew 22. Remember Matthew 22? The king, his son, he has a celebration, a wedding celebration. So he sends out his servants into the world. And the world's just too busy to come. And they have all kinds of excuses why they don't come. And the frustration and the anger of the king, he says to his servants, and by the way, they also injured his servants. That's you and I, when we give this call of the gospel. He says, you go out into the highways and the byways, and you call the sinner. And I will dress them in the proper clothing for the wedding feast. We are those who are dressed in the righteousness of Christ with the proper clothing to go to the wedding banquet that will be in the future with the Lamb of God. Are we not? So, these four categories are due to our justification through Christ Himself. What's fascinating about this is all four categories. The... um, I'm going to read it from the text. The foreknowing of God, the predestinating grace of God, the calling of God, and the glorification of God is all aorist tense. And that's what's interesting because we expect the foreknowing and the predestinating would naturally be aorist tense. But if you're an Arminian, to put glorification in the aorist tense is a problem. But that God sees over time our salvation and our glorification. It's the the reason why when we get to the end of this, we are all conquerors in Christ. It's not about you and it's not about what you do getting yourself saved or having the power to be saved. But it is the very will of God to save you. In mercy and grace. Completed action in the past. So even your glorification is a completed action in the past. Down the corridors of time, God foreknew you. It's the reason why you go to Revelation. We are we are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. This is how God views us. See, when we read these four difficult doctrinal theological categories, we have to look at it from God's perspective, not our own. And that's why you look at under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. So how much is man's effort involved in the work of grace? Absolutely none. We are the recipients of grace. And God, by His grace, allows us 
to exercise a will that's already been changed by the grace of God to know God. Jeremiah said the heart's beyond cure. We don't have the medicine to cure a heart to respond to the gospel. It is not there. There is no medicine past, present, and the future. No doctor of theology who has a different theology of the sovereignty of God can ever find the medicine to cure the heart of man. This whole doctrine, Paul, you could say, uh, in, uses to influence his understanding of redemptive history, a redemptive history past, present, and future for the Jews in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Yes, sir? Uh, people would oppose this doctrine on the basis that we're, we're told to be evangelistic, mm. go out into all the world mm. and preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. Can you clarify that for us, brother? <laughs> How we can be evangelistic, yet at the same time we know that God isn't going to save certain people. Well, I mean, I answer it two ways, because one way is insufficient. The first way is, is first is the command of God. But that's insufficient because they're still trying to get to the heart. How could we ever want to evangelize when we already knew things were already predestined to occur? Because I know that by the grace of God I was saved. He's given me a heart to want other souls to be saved. And it's the reason why I witnessed the gospel. I long for hearts to be saved, for souls to be saved, because Christ did. And it's not that the servant is greater than the master. He's to be as the master, right? Uh, right? Uh, you know, so using kind of like a, a numerical model, right? It mm -hmm. looks like there's going to be a finite number of, of God's people in heaven, like at the end of it all, right? Mm -hmm. like you can have that number like a rolling ticker on the, on the wall. Like at some point, there's going to be this number of, of people who are in heaven with God and then the number of people who aren't, right? right? Right. And that number isn't going to plus or minus because you or I did or didn't do it. Mm. But within the... Hey, what's up, bro? Hey, um, but, uh, uh, but I, I, I... And I don't have anything necessarily to base this on other than just my feeble like attempts at, at figuring stuff out but that number may not be plus or minus because of mine or your obedience but one of those numbers could be you know the realization that they are one of God's chosen could come to them at 20 years old based on an interaction that I had with them or if I'm <coughs> disobedient to the Lord or to the leading of the Lord and don't share that maybe it's a realization that doesn't come to them to somewhere else down the line where there's a I'm missing out of the blessing because of my disobedience. So, like, the end game doesn't change. <coughs> but, like, I definitely think that we can spur people on for good or for better or for worse based on our obedience within that, which is enough of a drive to evangelize because, hey, A, we don't know who they are and who they aren't, and B, maybe today's the day where the light bulb goes on, and that's because of an interaction that God placed in. I believe one of the greatest motivations is because all men are created in the image of God. And how prideful we would be to say that God saved me, but I'm not interested in the rest when they're image bearers just like me. 
it would be just foolishness. Seth and I. Uh, well, I think most importantly, people aren't going to be saved unless we preach the gospel. That's right. Um, and that's, that's a misnomer about the sovereignty of God to think that God's going to save them outside of the means he's established. That's right. Good point. Excellent um, point. So we have to preach the gospel, otherwise people won't come to Christ. That's right. And to add to that, faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God right. and it's up to us to be that God uses us uh, to preach that word. I think as Paul says, he uses the foolishness of preaching, right? Isn't that? Yeah. So it's foolish, not because preaching is foolishness. It's foolish when you understand that God doesn't need us, but he uses us. And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is a beautiful work of God that God has given us. To long for men's souls, I say that universally, for all who are lost, and to preach the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. Go to Romans 10. Actually, go to Romans 9 first. Romans 9. Paul will carry these doctors I already mentioned to it in 9, 10, and 11. Let's just go to a couple specific texts. He speaks of the blessings that the Gentiles receive through the Rejection. He includes the phrase here what verse? of the calling. Verses uh, 7 and 24 of chapter 9. Mm-hmm. Neither all are children because they are of Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac our descendants will be named. All right? He's talked about what really is a child of God right about the middle of chapter 8. Now look at verse 23 and 24 of chapter 9. And he did so in order that it might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, that's the Gentiles, whom he also called, not from among the Gentiles only, but also Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. He says from Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Paul brings this whole understanding of what it means to be saved by a sovereign God. And we are a vessel of mercy, not a vessel of wrath. Israel cries out, verse 27, concerning Israel. Isaiah cries out, though the number... And by the way, take note of that. Isaiah cries out. He doesn't say, huh, well, you know, you guys deserved it, you know. Well, here you are. You're darkened. God is finally blinding you. You got what you deserve. I'm going on to someone who may listen, right? Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. He cries out, but his theology has never changed, right? He understands the sovereignty of God. He understands that the sovereign free will of God supersedes the freedom of men. The freedom of men would choose God on their conditions. God says, I choose men on my conditions. And that's His foreknowing, His predestinating power, His calling, His glorifying work. And then... That other text, just go to Romans 10, 19, and 20. 
But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. And by a nation, without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah said very boldly, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask me. That's you and I. We didn't seek Him. We didn't ask Him. Well, you say, oh, I thought about God and then when I in my search... But remember what Paul says to the Galatians. He says that we know God or rather, it's like a correction in the middle of the sentence, that we were made known to God or known of God. We didn't come to know God by any power. It was through His power. By His electing grace. Now, God's electing grace then in salvation must have a goal in mind. Paul says it's to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's always, always, always the goal of God's sovereignty. To conform us to the image of His Son that we're presented to to the Father in the glorified name and also personhood of the Son. We look like the Son. That's what our calling is upon this earth. Not just for salvation, but in sanctifying work, but not just for sanctification alone, but sanctification for the image-bearing reflection of the Son of God. So, let me look at my time here. Ah, some Christians say this is God's purpose for us. Not predestined salvation, but glorification of image bearers. I've heard that as a reasoning through from those who would emphasize man's will and salvation. That, and, and let me put it in the simplistic sense. There are those who believe that God solely, sovereignly chooses. And we are, we are saved by that very sovereign choice of God alone. Not because there's any power within us. Then there are others who say, and putting this in a simplistic manner... Life is like a bridge. And God comes halfway across the bridge and waits for man to come the other halfway across the bridge to be saved. But that necessitates that you have power in yourself to do so. And I believe that the Bible contradicts that. But this is one of those texts, and I'm just kind of bringing this out for a little thought, that they would say that this foreordaining of God is solely to bring us into the conformity of the image of Christ. Not to salvation. But that's not the context. In fact, Paul will follow this up in nine chapters 9, 10, and 11 about the saving grace of God. The electing grace of God. So then in verse 31, go back to chapter 8. Now he makes his point. What then shall we say then of these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul uses four rhetorical questions here, all using the word who. I think sometimes we need to speak like this to our own souls when we get somewhat discouraged or maybe you're depressed or a little in despair something has happened in your life and there's discouragement we need to we need to speak to our own souls what is already the known truth of God within our hearts that is and by the way I learned something 
I love I love the analogy, so I'm going to go a little offshoot, but it does connect. Prayer is like a child learning. The child doesn't grow by going through a course on English or whatever ethnic background they come from in learning. And by the age of three or four, the child has a full comprehension of the English or Spanish language. You don't. The parent doesn't give them a book and say, "Here, learn." Right. But the child learns language by the parents speaking into the child's language. Tim Keller makes a very good point about your prayers. Of course, the context here is also prayers. That is, the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, is being spoken into us as a child of God. And over time, we learn the language of God. And by doing so, we can speak, when we speak to our own souls, the who's. Who is greater than Christ? I'm discouraged. Satan, who are you? I have Christ. You do not. Right? This is the Word of God, the knowledge of the Word of God, speaking into our souls, giving us the language of God to speak in our prayers, to speak back to God within our own souls, be in our own encouragement. That's Psalm 46. Speak to thy own soul. This is the help of your countenance. You want to improve your countenance, know the Word of God, have it spoken by the Spirit of God into you that you might speak in prayer back to God and be encouraged in your countenance as well. You might even, in a depressed state, be flushed with the love of God and the brightness of a smile when you didn't even expect it because you took God's viewpoint, not your own. That's how people get undepressed because God is greater than their depression. But we have to be like a child. It began in our salvation. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you be converted and become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the same way we are with God for the rest of our lives as a Christian. Right? The Word of God is spoken into us. It's the reason why we spend time, we wake up an extra hour early, and we come to Bible study, because it's not an exercise only. It is the Word of God being used by the Spirit of God. To uplift our souls. So, what then shall we say then to these things? Four rhetorical questions. We can do this exercise for our own self. Doug Moose says this, Paul wants us to internalize every, everything he has taught us so far. When you speak rhetorically, you're reminding yourself of something you already know. It's the reason why he doesn't have to articulate these great big doctrines. Paul's already taught them. He's already talked about the depravity of man. When you understand the depravity of man, you realize that you need God totally in the sovereignty. You can't do anything about it. That's the book of Romans and how it starts, right? Have you internalized the Word of God? Big question for the morning. Have you internalized it? It only comes through reading... And as Wally said, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. 
The more you absorb it, you receive the word engrafted, it becomes part of you. That means, that means God becomes part of you. He's already there, of course, but the idea, though, is that your will is the Lord's will. Your speech is the Lord's speech. Your discernment is the Lord's discernment. And we live in a day and age. I was watching, watching Michael Youssef this morning. He was hitting this nail right on the head, right for his own congregation, about the neglect, the apathy of the, the body of Christ. He's speaking to his own people, probably about a thousand people out there, about the apathy of the Word of God and how we as a church, if you want to see why the nation is falling, Look at how much time they spend in the Word of God. Look how much they love God through the Word of God. How much their prayers are affected by the Word of God. And if you are a Christian and don't pray much, then there's some disconnect based upon that reason why you don't. And it's usually how much you're absorbed in the Word of God or the lack of it. It just is. We forget about the living Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity abiding within us to a degree that we are animated. A flesh that still has the remnants of corruption within us. We are animated to do things above and beyond what we believe we have the capacity to do because of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. So he says... God who is for us is also the God who died for us. It's the reason why we can use these rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who is against us? Christ died for me. You can read it just like that. He died for you. You can conquer. Do you think that in part, Paul, in the background of what he's saying here is that who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In other words, there could have been there was a confliction between the Jew and the Gentile. Mm-hmm. So no Jew could say to the Gentile, you know, you're not you're not a child of God. You're not one of the elect. You're not one of God's people. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the people of God. But the who can lay anything against God's elect? Who who are you to say anything about me not being one of God's children? Yeah. When the scripture says Christ died for me, that I'm not condemned, that I've been elected, predestinated, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So it's sort of like a boast against the antagonist who questions the salvation of the Gentiles. First time Gary George in a month has been 100% right. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. I'm back from vacation. Loaded for bear. (laughs) But he's correct because the context is everything. And we know that context comes into play even more in 9, 10, 11. has everything to do with what a spiritual Jew is compared to a physical Jew. And what is the end of time? That there's, a, and there's an end even to the Gentile age and a re-beginning for a very moment of time the Gentiles being ushered into the kingdom of God, ethnic Jews, to be saved by the elect and grace of God one last time. Yeah, it's definitely in Paul's mind, isn't it? So who will bring a charge against us? Paul bringing back in when he says who will bring a charge and who is the one who condemns us Back to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in God, in relationship to His Son, and therefore in the favor of the Father through the Son, and no more wrath threatens us. None. And finally, in verse 35, he says, Who can separate us from 
the love of God. This this finishes up his discourse here by separating. He he brings back in verse 28 and he ends it with the same love that we were ordained to do, the very love that is working within us, the works of God to do. Paul wants us to look at the world as powerless, just as he said in reference to our personal relationship to sin. Sin is powerless now because of the love of God manifested on the cross and Christ redeeming us. It's interesting, Richard Ives did this same chapter as a sermon Christmas Eve. I wouldn't have remembered it, so obviously when I did the sermon, it was after Christmas Eve and not that far after. Um, Like I said, after vacation, I'm trying to recall some of this uh, stuff that I wrote down here. In, In Psalm 44, verse 15, the psalmist says, My humiliation has overwhelmed me. That's the world pounding on the individual believer. We are humiliated every day like Christ. We are Because what Paul is saying here is, um, the world would challenge you against these things. You know, where's the debater of the age? Where's the one who confronts you? Where's, where's the ones who are persecuting you? It's in this light. And yet the the psalmist answers his own you could say depressed humiliation he says I will not trust in my bow nor will my sword save me when the pressures of the world come upon us which Paul does make certain we know that sufferings are within the world for us to partake in that trusting in ourselves is not going to be the solution to it But the love of God and the work of the love of God within us will carry us through and carry us through the day. Look what he says in verse 37 through 39. But in all these things, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you imagine that? That the love of God is so powerful, it is like glue that keeps us from separating from God. It was the very means to which that is the love of God, the means to which He saved us on the cross. But it is also the very means that causes you to persevere and and to endure within this life. Love causes us to endure. The more you love God in this life as a Christian, the more you'll endure with a smile on your face, with a contentment in your heart the more you look at the world's problems, and yes, they are great. I mean, I was thinking about using this in the sermon in a couple weeks. Talking about the sovereignty of God, I'm thinking, how many Christians, I mean, Christians get all worked up about politicians, don't they? Oh my goodness. When Bill Clinton was in, you know, you thought the world was coming to an end to some Christians. You talk about politics all the time. Then Barack... Obama came in and you thought the fires of hell were licking up at our feet already, right? There's this, this increased anxiety that comes 
when it just the liberal progressives are taking over the whole Western culture and society. And I don't totally disagree with that. But then we have to get our eyes off of all of that. And look at the love of God that causes us to endure no matter what happens. Next scenario that's going to happen. I'm not a prophet. Everyone is looking at Donald Trump to win. I'm seeing the sovereignty of God. He loves to do things opposite of what even Christians think. Is it possible that we could have a gay man holding hands with his with his with his uh, partner in the Whiteness House as next president of the United States? The first lady? What's that? Would he still be considered the first lady? Yeah. <laughs> Bizarre man. But here's the thing. We can get all worked up about that. Or we can choose to focus on the sovereignty of God. And by the way, if Budovich, Pete Budovich, the gay man running for president, gets in the office, do you believe that Pete Budovich is the man that God has decreed to be in the Oval Office? Yes. Your answer better be yes. <laughs> Your answer must be a yes. It doesn't mean he stopped loving you. Right? He hasn't given up. Yes, much of the church has given up on God. That was Michael Youssef this morning. He just wrote a book. I think I might want to get it. It's on. He says, I'm naming names. He says, the culture has gotten so bad and has infiltrated the church so bad that we think the church is going so far off the path of God. He says, we're doing all kinds of different things within the church to, 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 to make the gospel more relevant, to, to save more souls. You know, more tricks up our sleeve rather than the pure gospel of Christ Amen. alone and the sovereignty of God alone. And the, it's the gospel that's relevant. I had a woman ask me, she says, this is in, um, I probably mentioned it to you, this couple of years in Mexico, uh, older woman in her 90s. And uh, she, says me, she says, what is the relevance of the virgin birth? And I was like, that was, I said, first off, I said to her, excellent question. And I'm saying, that's a unique one. I haven't, I haven't had to answer that one. And then it dawned on me by the Spirit of God. I know it was only the Spirit of God. I said, salvation never becomes irrelevant. And it was through the means of a virgin's womb to bring Messiah into this age to save men. Salvation, you don't have to rework salvation to make it look more palpable to a world just because we're so modern. The Gospel is relevant today. It was yesterday and it will be tomorrow. And the church does seem like it's fallen apart. It certainly has fallen prey to the culture. And many teachers out there, like Michael Youssef has said, have fallen prey to all kinds of other different unique doctrines or ministries to try to draw in people to seemingly try to make it relevant. And, and I marvel. I, I marvel. Paul in chapter 1 said, by the way, I'm preaching the gospel to the Roman church. And if I wrote this letter, <laughs> I still remember I wrote a letter to Brian and, uh, when he was in prison. And Brian said, I didn't understand your letters a lot. I probably could have toned them down some more. But the same was probably spoken of Paul. His words are weighty. We can simplify God, and we must to a certain degree. Absolutely. And that is the gospel. It's a simple message. But I would never find fault with Paul as well, with the complexity of the gospel that is so deep and so great 
to demonstrate this greatness of God and His sovereignty. And it takes truth, deep truth, to explain it to a church. So, let us not get overworked about a world that, in a church that seems to be going down a different wine road. But brothers and sisters, we are conquerors already. And it's the love of God that causes us to conquer. And it begins with uh, first in His eternal counsel of the Trinitarian persons and ordaining it, John chapter 6, that we are love offerings from the Father to the Son in the covenantal way. And the Son comes to this earth and fulfills the new covenant in His blood. And the Spirit of God is, God is promised to come. And He says, this is why I must leave you now to His own disciples because the power of the Spirit will come within you. And He's going to engage the church. He's going to inform the church. And we're going to be a powerful conquering church. And yet, if all the churches fall away, Sovereign Grace Chapel has a choice. Are we willing to stand doctrinally experientially in understanding and also proclaiming this gospel in its fullest sense even if we're the last church on the block with the true gospel and there's many churches trust me I'm not trying to isolate us plenty of churches out there where by the grace of God I can name all kinds of reformed churches that were never around from, from here all the way down into Connecticut but at the end of the day we have to also say to ourselves are we willing to stand alone in Christ if we must with the purity of the gospel remember what Paul said he says I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived thee your mind should be led astray also from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ if we are put in jail for the gospel are we still standing firm in the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ your foundation in that rock formed cell will be the rock of Christ and the sovereignty of God when four walls seem to be enclosing in on you for your persecution for the cross. But the rock of God is greater than the rocks of men. Is it not? Let us finish in prayer. Father, we thank you. We express our love to you. The love that first came from the throne of God. And still within our hearts, that love of we, as we go upstairs. And may our souls pour out the very words of God hidden in our hearts. To sing praises to your name. To give meditations of prayer. To listen to the word intently. To receive more bread from heaven itself through Gary. And, O oh Lord, that we would, monitor, we would magnify your name above the heavens. For the glory of your holy name. Amen. Thank you, Todd.